0: So I think, good morning, I think right now is when I, we dismiss the children who want to go up with Carly and Arena upstairs to the gymnasium to play for a little bit. Can you hear me all right? Oh, there we go. Well, our second lesson this morning comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day. When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by him. Our lectionary readings have us continuing with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, where we encounter a woman attending synagogue who finds herself to be chosen by Jesus. In choosing this woman, Jesus demonstrates what the fullness of salvation looks like, what Jesus's mission and ministry is all about. Jesus, through Luke's telling, will remind us this morning that he comes bringing a liberating salvation rooted in his Jewish heritage and tradition rooted in the mighty works of God from of old. It is a liberating salvation intended for all human beings when this world is joined with the world to come, and Christ is all in all. Let's dig into this gospel story together, seeing how Luke strategically evokes themes of liberation that he has already introduced us to earlier in this gospel, and that stretch back to God's intentions outlined in the Torah for the children of Abraham. It feels appropriate for us to first sit and linger with this chosen woman this morning, ponder her situation for a while. It's easy to rush past her. You can feel Luke's haste in the text, to get to the conflict. Is what Jesus did for her work or is it not? Is the healing okay on the Sabbath or is it not? But I don't think Jesus or Luke wants us to miss her. Let's pull up a metaphorical chair to her kitchen table or her shop and let's hear her story over a cup of tea. This reminds me of eating rum cake with my grandmother at her kitchen table. I just returned about four days ago from an epic road trip out east, and one of the stops along the way was in D.C. um, to visit some family, and it included my grandmother, and I was able to introduce my three-year-old to her for the first time. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, is an immigrant here in the United States. She's far from her home. This past week, I was struck by how arthritis has taken over her body. Her arthritic hands are no longer able to crochet the delicate altar claws that she loves to crochet for her beloved Catholic parish. She, like the bent woman in our text today, has much to teach us. I recently read this wonderful book, Abuelita Faith, by Kat Armas. I highly recommend it. If you want to borrow it, let me know. It is a book about the innate spiritual wisdom offered to us by marginalized women, our grandmothers and mothers, our aunts and mentors, and the ways that these women nurture and shape our faith. This woman that we encounter this morning is another one of those spiritual ancestors, mothers of the faith, literally on the margins in our story this morning, and she encounters Jesus. Who was she? 18 years of being unable to look a person face to face, confined to the world, defined around her toes, always looked at on a slant. I so wish, as with many unnamed women in the Bible, that we knew her name, Her circumstances, her people. How did she come to have a bent back? Was it illness? Was it a tragic accident? Was it brought on by back-breaking work of being stooped over for so many hours in a day for years on end that she was eventually unable to stand up straight? We don't know. Was it her regular practice to come to synagogue and worship God each week? Did she feel embarrassed when Jesus singled her out? Or did she feel perhaps seen for the first time when others, like myself, often turn away from her disfigured body in shame? We don't know her name, but she is identified by her chronic illness and bondage under Satan We don't know the specifics of her medical condition, but we do know that the text tells us she was quite unable to stand up straight. Now I'd like to pause for a brief moment to name and acknowledge that some of you may be feeling uncomfortable, understandably, that the lectionary has dropped us into a healing text. Maybe some of you live with a daily, physical or mental disability? How do these healing stories apply to us? Death and physical pain feel unrelenting. I have no easy answers for how we should apply these stories to our current situation, but I don't want to fall into the pitfall of approaching this healing metaphorically and denying the physical malady and reality of this woman's situation nor do I wanna focus so much on her physical condition that we equate her healing with what wholeness or restoration is like and what Jesus brings for our lives. To help us process disability in our own lives, I find it interesting that this woman's presence in the synagogue does not seem very remarkable. I imagine that she was a regular worshipper in her community, and I wonder if we can be challenged by this today, by this snapshot of this woman in the synagogue this morning as we think about how differently abled persons are present in our worshiping communities. Those with physical disabilities are widely denied access to the full life of the church, and we need them to be here for the whole body of Christ to be present. I remember... When my family and I were in between churches, we had the opportunity to visit a number of church buildings, properties, spaces. And I remember we visited one old church, probably over a hundred years old, beautiful stone, stained glass windows. And there was an altar at the front and it was a raised sort of stage altar platform. And I saw this on-ramp going up to the altar area. And at first it kind of struck me as, aesthetically disruptive to the symmetry of this beautiful old altar space, but as I reflected on it, it was the most beautiful thing. It was a picture of the inbreaking of God's reign here on earth, where no office or status or function in the church is denied to a person based on their physicality. I wonder how we can hold this in mind as we imagine our new space on Lincoln Avenue, Lord willing, and how we might honor the experiences of all people in our church space. And finally, we would do well to remember that we worship a risen, a glorified, and a disabled savior who bears the wounds of the cross on his body. Now back to our story. I'm excited to discuss the setting of this story with you some more. Not just because setting a context for a biblical story is most important, but because the setting is strategic on Luke's part. Uh, This is a characteristic of Luke's that we'll get to enjoy more this morning. He does not miss an opportunity to make a reading between the lines kind of point. The setting is a synagogue on Sabbath, and it is while Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem where he will eventually be killed. The fact that our story takes place on a synagogue on Sabbath not only reminds us that the mission and ministry of Jesus is rooted in his Jewishness, it would have also recalled for the first or second century listeners or hearers of this story of Luke's telling of Jesus's first visit to a synagogue in his Galilean hometown of Nazareth in Luke 4. So stick with me. What I'm saying is the... the The synagogue visit that Jesus does in Luke chapter 4 is going to directly inform this synagogue visit that we find ourselves in in Luke chapter 13. Jesus' visit in Luke 4 is an important moment in Jesus' ministry because it's where he kicks off his mission. And it is literally informing our passage this morning, helping us understand the ways that God's liberating reign and kingdom is breaking into ordinary life. So what is going on in Luke 4? Why is it so important? Well, if you remember, it's that energy-charged moment when Jesus takes the scroll before the synagogue audience and quotes from Isaiah, speaking about himself, and he says, "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind.'" to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I love how clear and succinct Jesus is. This does not sound like some of the salvific Jesus equations of my youth. What does Luke 4, what does Jesus tell us that his mission and ministry is all about? It's good news for the poor, proclaiming release to the captives, recovery of sight, to let the oppressed go free. What's even better about this very radical mission is that it's not a new idea. It's rooted in Jesus' Jewish heritage. Jesus' mission and ministry, stick with me, is a reflection of the jubilee year amnesty for the oppressed outlined in Isaiah, this text that he quotes from. That's what he means when he says, the year of the Lord's favor. This is the jubilee year, the year of release. And if you don't know what jubilee is, that's totally fine. It's something that's not quite short of miraculous that God instituted for God's people that was to occur every 50 years. And it was this beautiful time when God commanded that debts be canceled, slaves be set free, and property returned to their original owners. So what are we trying to say here? We're saying that Jesus is telling us in his first synagogue visit in chapter 4 that his ministry is about ushering in jubilee, release for the captives, the year and time of release. So in today's chapter and in today's synagogue visit, biblical scholars largely agree that Luke is clearly intending us to connect that first visit with this visit thereby seeing this woman as one of the captives from Jesus' mission declaration, a captive about to be released and, to use the language of Mary's magnificat, lifted up. Jesus relies on this language of bondage and oppression in in our text and our description of this woman this morning so that we don't miss the point that she is the kind of person who Jesus was talking about when he kicked off his ministry in Luke 4. This is what salvation looks like. This is what release and liberation looks like in ordinary life. And Jesus does this for an unlikely candidate, a woman about whose piety or righteousness we know nothing. Jesus simply calls her and releases her in letting this captive go free, Jesus appears to be releasing her from something both physical and spiritual. It seems, as New Testament scholar Frances Taylor Gensch says in her book, Back to the Well, another wonderful book that I would love to loan out, that Luke is making the point that there are oppressive forces in the world that disfigure and diminish human life that are contrary to God's intentions. Now, I'll say that again because this reminds me of what I hear so often from you all at Grace Chicago about human flourishing. And she's saying that there are these forces in the world that disfigure and diminish human life that are contrary to God's intentions, and such forces are rightly described as they are in this text as demonic. I can't help but think of the young girls in Afghanistan that we prayed for this morning, currently being denied access to an education. Indeed, this is a diminishing and a disfiguring of human life. Our woman this morning has been restored both physically and spiritually, touched by her healer, her liberator, her savior. Her voice is thus now heard in the midst of the sanctuary as she gives audible expression to her praise and she joins the chorus of praise found within the gospel of Luke, joining Mary's Magnificat from Luke 1, saying the mighty one has done great things for me. She says her God has lifted up the lowly, so for this woman. She joins the angels saying glory to God in the highest and the shepherds who glorified and praised God for all they had been witness to. Now, what does the liberation of our woman and Jesus' mission and ministry have to do with Sabbath and our synagogue leader? Well, let's first try to understand the role of the synagogue ruler and where he was coming from in this story. His job was to regulate worship and maintain the faithful reading and teaching of the law. So let's be careful that we don't fall into a trap that I am often susceptible to. Let's not caricature this man as petty and legalistic in his insistence on sat proper observance of the Sabbath. For Sabbath observance was of utmost importance to the Jewish people, not to mention Yahweh. Yahweh. And it was essential to the preservation of their identity and their integrity in a culture that threatened to engulf and overwhelm them. In this man's view, Jesus' action on behalf of the crippled woman constitutes work and is thus in violation of the principles outlined in Torah. I empathize with this guy. He's saying, Jesus, we're trying to faithfully follow God's law here. Can't you at least wait a few hours until sundown and then you can heal her? But as Jesus does for us, so he does for this synagogue leader and those in attendance. In his rebuke, in his response, he draws open the curtains to speak truth from deep within the tradition of his people. Speaking to the heart of what Sabbath is and God's faithful intentions for the children of Abraham. Intentions that extend to you and to me. What does Jesus do? Well, first, he references Deuteronomy 5 and plays on the words bound and loose, skillfully arguing that he loosed the woman from her infirmity. And if the law permits the loosing of a bound or tethered animal on the Sabbath so that an animal could be go to water, then why not this woman who has been bound and tethered by Satan for 18 long years? And then he moves to the greater truth, proclaiming, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? He's using that word bondage again. Why is he doing that? This would have immediately recalled to the hearers and readers of this biblical story the bondage of the Hebrew people Sabbath, Jesus is saying, is a commemoration of Israel's release from bondage. We've already discussed how Jesus' argument in the synagogue here intentionally carries echoes of releasing the captives from his ministry kickoff in Luke 4. And even more so, he's saying, it carries direct echoes from Torah instruction regarding the Sabbath, making the point that Sabbath itself is all about liberation— the liberation of the Hebrews in the land of Egypt. Listen to the Ten Commandments as God speaks about Sabbath, and he directly ties this Exodus and the Sabbath truth. Deuteronomy says, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. I don't usually make that connection. The Exodus and Sabbath are intimately linked. Freedom and liberation are the very essence of the Sabbath celebration. The Sabbath, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, celebrated release from captivity and from bondage as well as from work. That is not how I was often taught to conceive of the Sabbath or practice Sabbath, It's radical, and it's why this deliverance, this liberation for this named daughter of Abraham is not only permissible, it is most appropriate on Sabbath. It is a foretaste of the final release from all bondage that awaits God's people in the age to come, and it is rooted in the saving work of God in the Exodus Exodus liberation. Jesus' mission of release for the captives is consistent with God's intentions for his people from the beginning, for this Jewish woman in the first century, and for us today. So as we begin to wrap up, what is all of this pointing toward? What does God's ministry, this liberating reign of God, how does that look if an ordinary life? Well, as we've learned from our passage, it looks like a Jewish woman who has been suffering for 18 long years, standing up straight and praising God. The reign of God looks like a despised chief tax collector who is invited to dine with Jesus. The reign of God looks like the promise of a mustard seed. The reign of God looks like a woman who diligently searches to find and rescue her lost coin. The reign of God looks like Rosa Parks or Claudette Colvin, who refused the oppressive margins of segregating Jim Crow laws and claimed God's liberating and freedom promises for themselves. The reign of God looks like an on ramp to the raised platform of a church altar. The reign of God looks like a person on the margins who is brought to the center of their community and finds her voice. When I imagine this woman, I think of her attending synagogue every week, faithfully, trusting God, perhaps believing when no one else did that the covenant promises were for her too. And then one day, Jesus, very God, Lord, as Luke describes him in our passage, sees her, names her, and releases her from captivity. And let's not forget the synagogue leader. Dare we claim God's promises for him as well? As a hardened rule follower myself, I have such empathy for this man. Did you catch the little nugget in verse 17 of our text that says that all the people who were opposing Jesus were ashamed and the whole crowd was overjoyed at the splendid things or the wonderful things that Jesus was doing. Perhaps the synagogue ruler isn't excluded from this transformed group. There is great hope for this man and for all of us rule followers who often miss the forest for the trees. And finally, those wonderful things that Luke tells us Jesus is doing in verse 17. That is a phrase found only in this New Testament text. Just to make sure the hearers of his gospel didn't miss those earlier echoes sprinkled throughout the story about the rootedness and the liberating themes of Jesus's mission and ministry, Luke ends the account by borrowing this phrase, "wonderful things," from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And he borrows this phrase because it's directly associated, of course, with the mighty deeds of the Lord during the Exodus. That is so like Luke, isn't it? Luke is slowly and beautifully revealing for his audience and for us today that Jesus is one and the same with Yahweh, wonderfully liberating God's people just as God has always been doing. The saving ministry and mission of Christ, the liberating reign of God, drawing near in Jesus Christ is for you and for me. Shortly after Jesus's healing of the woman, he exits the synagogue for the final time, continues on his journey to Jerusalem and to the cross, the cross which we sang so beautifully about this morning. The cross, which is so inextricably linked to this divine, liberating mission of setting people free. Thank you.